Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. In 1971, a single crime, breathtaking in its daring, created an American legend. A man known only as D.B. Cooper bailed out of a plane with $200,000 and a parachute, never to be seen again. But there's more to the legacy of this legend than the generations of citizen detectives who, to this day, are still searching the Pacific Northwest for signs of his landing. You see, D.B. Cooper created another myth, one that led an astonishing number of people to ask themselves, if D.B. Cooper could do it, why not me? As it turned out, it is hard to do what D.B. Cooper did, but a lot of people tried, including right here in St. Louis in 1972. And that hijacking and the lasting impact of D.B. Cooper are the subjects of a new book titled The Hijacking of American Flight 119, How D.B. Cooper Inspired a Skyjacking Craze and the FBI's Battle to Stop It. This new book's author is John Wigger, a history professor at the University of Missouri. Last month, John spoke to St. Louis on the Air producer, Danny Wisentowski. Let's listen. John, this book deals a lot with D.B. Cooper, but its heart is in this incredible local hijacking that took place here in St. Louis in June of 1972. This story has so many twists, but just to summarize the basics, Martin McNally, he's a small-time crook from Detroit. He hijacks a plane leaving Lambert Airport. He obtains a parachute, $500,000 in cash, and he successfully makes the jump, but he is later arrested. Now, that is leaving out a lot of drama, but just to give us the arc of this story. So tell us, how did you learn of this hijacking and what drew you to it? Yeah, so um, I guess there's a number of different paths that brought me to this story. Um, I have a background in flight. I grew up flying with my dad. Some of my earliest memories are in airplanes. Um, And I used to be a pilot myself. Um, A few years ago, I started teaching a history of flight course at the University of Missouri. And what I found is that everybody's favorite lecture was D.B. Cooper. Um, more so than Amelia Earhart or the Wright brothers or the moon landings. So I thought, well, if students are interested in it, I'll just see how far I can expand this topic. So I began to get into contact with um, former retired FBI agents who had worked hijacking cases, pilots, um, stewardesses, as they were always called at the time, and eventually a few of the hijackers, including Marty McNally. Um, At one point, Marty uh, zoomed into one of my uh, classes, and the students were absolutely fascinated by his story as he told it. And the more I got into it, it just became apparent that there was was a book here, that there was a, a bigger story that had never really been told. Now, you you mentioned that Martin McNally actually talked to your classroom. He was released from federal prison in 2010. What what is it like? What was it like to meet him? And did you find him remorseful? How did he talk about this event? He was wonderful with the students. He answered all of their questions um, without any dissembling. Um, 
they found him fascinating. He's not the kind of person that they normally interact with at the university. Um, and he also told them that the hijacking was the stupidest thing he'd ever done, that in some respects it ruined his life, and he encouraged them to stay in school and uh, make something of themselves. So uh, having him in class was really, in the end, just delightful. Now, he, he did spend almost 40 years in prison before getting out, so it definitely impacted his life. Now, you write in your book that D.B. Cooper and Martin McNally and the other parachute hijackers did not invent air piracy. They redefined it. What do you mean by that? Yes. So there were very few airline hijackings in the U.S. before 1968. And then between 1968 and 1972, um, there were well over 100. Um, initially, most of them were to Cuba in 1968-69, which in itself is a fascinating story. Um, but by 1971-72, uh, most of the hijackings had become extortion hijackings, where the hijackers actually asked for money. Um, the problem, of course, is uh, once you get a ransom on a plane, how do you escape with the money? And uh, that's what D.B. Cooper figured out. There were eventually five parachute hijackers who jumped um, and another uh, dozen or so who asked for parachutes but didn't use them. So McNally was, was one of several of these copycats of D.B. Cooper. What was so intriguing um, and alluring about that kind of crime? One of the unexpected things about D.B. Cooper and something that frustrated the FBI was that he became a sort of folk hero. Um, people admired what he had done. There were songs about him, there were t-shirts, there were fan clubs. And of course, as people heard this story, including Martin McNally, um, they sat back and said, wow, that is actually pretty cool. Maybe I can do that. Now take us to June 23rd, 1972. And, and the days after. This is the date of Martin McNally's hijacking of Flight 119. That's where the title of the book comes from. America, it's an American Airlines flight out of Lambert International. So much happens in this hijacking, and you tell it so compellingly. There are so many twists. So many things happen to McNally that he didn't expect, and McNally does things that nobody expects. Do you have a favorite part of this story, and, and could you zoom in on it for us and, and tell us why it stands out to you? Well, it took the FBI nearly a week to track McNally down. Um, and if I had to pick one favorite episode from that period, it would be after uh, Martin McNally landed, uh, bailed out um, near the small town of Peru, Indiana. And he was actually on a road walking into town um, when the Peru chief of police drove by at night. Um, he actually had his wife in the car with him. And he saw McNally and he pulled over and he questioned him. Um, McNally spun a story about how he had been in a fight with his brother and was uh, walking back into town and was going back home to the Detroit area. And he managed to convince the chief of police, Richard Blair, uh, that this was true. Um, Blair asked him if he had heard about the hijacking. McNally said he had. And then Blair basically said, son, they're looking for a hijacker. You better get off the road or you'll be swept up in the search. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And then Blair gave him a ride into town and dropped him off at the only uh, hotel in town, the Peru Motor Lodge. And McNally at this point looks like he's fallen out of a plane. He's, he's heavily bruised, is he not? Yeah, the small uh, front reserve parachute that they had given him hit him in the face uh, when it uh, opened. And so it, um, he had cuts and bruises uh, on his face. And, of course, that, that bag of $500,000, he, he loses that in the jump as well. And it's recovered uh, by this, you know, some, a farmer, I believe, a soybean farmer living in this area of Indiana. Um, just a, a crazy series of events. And one thing that is just amazing about the book is that you not only interviewed the FBI agents who, co- who responded to this in St. Louis, but you tracked down the agents who went looking for McNally in Peru, Indiana, the ones who were looking through this field and this this heavily wooded area to figure out where did the hijacker land and are we going to find a body or a person? What was it like to, to hear about that search for him after his jump? Well, interviewing the retired FBI agents was just wonderful. Uh, their memories were great. Um, they were, they, they remembered details about the story that later checked out when I went back and compared them to trial records and newspaper accounts. Um, and uh, in many respects, writing the book would have been nearly impossible without them. And how did you get in touch with them? Because you really do. You found so many different agents who had so many different parts of this case. Some were in planes following McNally in his, in his hijacked you know, Boeing 727. Um, you talked to the ones who analyzed the forensic evidence, the ones who arrested him in Detroit. Just an incredible spread. I mean, were these guys just waiting around for someone to ask them to, to finally tell this story? Yeah, in connection with this hijacking, I think I talked to a couple of dozen uh, former agents and uh, they still belong to retiree groups and keep in touch with each other. So um, once you sort of get an in with a couple of them, um, they begin to give you referrals to talk to talk to their former colleagues. And uh, yeah, they were just uh, they were happy to talk about the case. You know, your book includes so many details about the hijacking itself, but there's this parallel story of the FBI trying to figure out why are these hijackings happening over and over again? Talk about how the FBI was wrestling with, is there a standard mode of operation here or are they just winging it? Well, the FBI had been dealing with this pretty continuously since 1968. Um, there were sometimes multiple hijackings on the same day. Uh, newspaper coverage of one hijacking often overlapped with another. So they had been at this for several years before D.B. Cooper. The Cooper case introduced something new, which of course was parachuting from the aft stairs of a Boeing 727. Um, and the problem for the FBI is that both the airlines and the federal government, the FAA, were extremely reluctant to install better airport security. Um, So it just proved almost impossible to keep armed hijackers uh, off of planes. It seems just hard to imagine now, you know, to have a series of those kinds of crimes over and over again. And perhaps it's coming from looking at this, you know, after 9-11. But how could that situation keep going without the airlines stepping in for metal detectors, for security, 
you know, where they were still saying, oh, it's only just been a dozen hijackings. You know, we're not we're, we still don't want to act or do anything rash. How how do you understand that moment and how those decisions were made? It's one of the things that really amazes my students, because, of course, most of them weren't even born uh, when 9-11 happened. Um, I think airlines were reluctant to install better security for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, the no passengers died in a hijacking before 1971. And in fact, for many passengers, the hijackings to Cuba turned into something uh, akin to an unexpected vacation. Um, the Cuban government went out of its way to make the passengers stay in Havana welcoming. Um, of course, they charged the airlines for putting them up and entertaining them. Um, there are stories that some passengers actually deliberately booked flights through Miami hoping to be hijacked so that they could spend a night on the town in Havana and have a story to tell. Um, before the hijackings turned violent, especially in the second half of 1972, the airlines themselves thought that installing better security might just intimidate passengers. And this is sort of the early phase of the jet age, uh, especially when they're bringing bigger jets online like the 747, and they were really concerned about uh, uh, not keeping people from wanting to fly. You also, in addition to the FBI agents, to the hijackers like Martin McNally, you talked with flight attendants and pilots about what this era was like. And this was not a silly time for them. They weren't looking forward to taking a trip to Havana. These could be very intense and scary situations. And the pilots and flight attendants sometimes would find ways to try to frustrate the hijacker or or do what they could to stop what was happening. Talk about what the flight attendants and pilots told you about how they endured these situations. You know, if there are unsung heroes of this entire era, it's the flight attendants or stewardesses, as they were always called at the time. Um, they were the ones that usually had a gun at their back, um, and they invariably worked to protect passengers, to uh, diffuse tension, to build a rapport with the hijackers and eventually create a situation where everybody could get out without being harmed. And you even found some ways that, at least in the case of Martin McNally, one of the really wild details you reveal here is that the pilot, after realizing that Martin McNally had jumped out of the plane, he tilted the nose of the plane up to direct the blast of the engines down at Martin McNally as a way of, you know, sending him into a tumble, perhaps, you know, making sure he didn't get away or even didn't survive. That really blew me away. Were there other examples of that? And, and was that something that, that surprised you? Well, I think uh, the pilot Leroy Berkebile was the first to try that, and he thought he'd actually done something that would would essentially have killed Martin McNally, made it impossible for him to open his parachute. Um, in the end, it didn't have the effect he intended. Um, but it, it did indicate just by that point in June 1972 how much pilots had thought through these hijacking scenarios and how they might respond. We'll get back to producer Danny Wisentowski's conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha. We're listening to producer Danny Wisentowski's conversation with University of Missouri history professor John Wigger about his new book, The Hijacking of American Flight 119. The book tells the story of a 1972 plane hijacking in St. Louis and how it was inspired by D.B. Cooper. You write about one of the complications of this which is that it wasn't clear if people could survive jumping out of a plane like this. Now, D.B. Cooper disappeared, and whether he survived or not is one of the, the key mysteries. But after McNally jumped, it seemed like there was a lot of certainty that they were going to find a body, that there was no way that he could survive. Why, why was that the assumption? Yes, and this does relate to the D.B. Cooper case. Um, for all its expertise, I think the FBI got it wrong here because they assumed that uh, Cooper died when he jumped, that there was no way that anyone could survive bailing out of the back of a 727. Um, And so in each subsequent case, including the hijacking of American 119, they assumed that if they didn't find the hijacker right away, that they had died when they hit the ground. Um, It turns out that all five of the parachute hijackers who followed D.B. Cooper survived their jumps with no serious injuries. You know, looking at those five copycats, um, which you describe in detail in the book, is Martin McNally representative of them, or is he maybe the most almost successful one of the bunch? Uh, How how does he stack up uh, in comparison? Uh, I think in many ways he came the closest to getting away with it, uh, with the possible exception of Richard McCoy, uh, who hijacked a a plane um, and then jumped over Provo, Utah. But um, Marty had a plan, and uh, if he hadn't lost the money on the way down, he might have at least made it home with the money, uh, whether or not he would have been discovered and tracked down later, I guess, is, is another matter. You attempt to kind of psychoanalyze at one point why these hijackers did what they did. Why target planes? And why, why did this become such a copyable <laughs> – why were there so many repetitions of this? Um, and you write that more than anything, the hijackers of this era were looking for respect and a way to give their lives meaning. Talk about that a bit. Was this kind of – a self-aggrandizement. You could be a petty crook or you could be a skyjacker. Was it something like that? Well, there are certainly easier ways to steal money um, than bailing out of the back of a 727 um, at night. Um, I, I think that's one of the things that sort of connected all of the parachute hijackers, that, that looking for some big event that would give their lives a a sense of meaning. But I think there were also other things that kind of formed a profile, if you will, for these hijackers. Um, Most of them had experienced the trauma of war, 
um, either usually in World War II or Vietnam. Um, I think it's pretty clear that most of them were suffering from some form of PTSD. And it, in some cases, it was, it was something that they did and really couldn't even explain later why they had done it. So much of your book, I felt like I learned about aviation history in a way that I, I didn't grasp before. And you bring us so much detail and the people who created you know, aviation as we know it today. And there is a sense almost that the, the history of aviation was almost leading up to this moment, to this golden age of hijacking. And it took things like the invention of parachuting, the Boeing 727 rear hatch, the culture around commercial flying. Is there a sense that this was building to a point that all of these threads were needed for someone like D.B. Cooper or Martin McNally to, to do what they did? Well, yes, I think that's right. Of course, no one could foresee that this would be one result of, of the development of commercial aviation. But yes, in many ways, uh, the hijackings were a product of the jet age. Um, it didn't make much sense to hijack planes back when they were propeller driven and essentially all very short haul planes. Um, it was something that was really only possible after you got not only commercial jets, but then a specific jet, the 727, that had these uh, very accessible aft stairs. And, and that particular jet and those stairs that could be lowered from the rear during flight, talk about you know, that that was really a necessary part for these hijackings and simply fixing that, ensuring it couldn't be opened, really stopped a lot of these hijackers. Well, the 727 was meant to be essentially a short haul jet. Um, the earlier 707 was great for flying from New York to London, but if you wanted to make hops from, I don't know, Boston to New York to Baltimore to Reagan National to Miami, um, that really wasn't something that the 707 was good at. So. Boeing created the 727 to fill this niche. And one of the features that they added to the plane were these aft stairs that meant that you didn't need to have external stairs to wheel up to the plane. Really for a 727, all you needed was a runway. And that made it capable of landing at a lot of airports that didn't have um, extensive facilities. Of course, what no one thought about was that those stairs could actually be lowered in flight, which meant that you could jump off them. Preventing the stairs from being lowered in flight was actually a really easy fix. Uh, they uh, began to install um, in the latter part of 1972 what were called Cooper vanes. And it's essentially just a little uh, vein that as the airflow increases, it swings over to block the gap between the stair and the fuselage so that the stair then can't be opened. In fact, if it was blowing hard enough on the ground, that vein could close when the air airplane was just sitting on the apron. To jump out of a plane like that, though, it just, mm -hmm. you know, what, what did Martin tell you about what that felt like? Yeah, the amazing thing about most of the parachute hijackers, uh, including Martin McNally, is that they did not have extensive parachuting experience. Um, McNally had never jumped out of a plane before, let alone out of the back of a 727. 
at night at 10,000 feet at 320 miles an hour. Um, and I think that's the really audacious part of it. If you go on YouTube, there are videos of large groups of people doing uh, imitation D.B. Cooper jumps out of the back of chartered 727s. And if you're ready for it and you're an experienced parachute jumper, it's really apparently not all that difficult. Um, but for someone to do it as their very first jump um, under really stressful uh, circumstances, that is, that is audacious to say the least, isn't it? So people are still obsessed with D.B. Cooper today. They're doing his same kind of jump through skydiving, of course, but people are still fascinated by who he was and whether he's still out there. Why is his story so resonant? I think for Cooper, it's simply the mystery of who was he. Um, we know the other parachute hijackers, they were all caught and so there isn't that same sense of mystery around their stories. Um, D.B. Cooper can be anyone you want him to be. John, we've been talking about D.B. Cooper, Martin McNally, a D.B. Cooper copycat, but there are others, and you've documented so many of these hijackings. What are some of your favorite stories that you came across here? Yes, so one of the D.B. Cooper copycats was Rob Hetty who hijacked a plane uh, out of Reno, Nevada. Reno at the time was known as hijacker's heaven because the security was so light. And indeed, Rob Hetty uh, hopped the three foot high perimeter fence around the apron with a pillowcase over his head and eye holes cut out so that he could see. Um, he was carrying a 357 Magnum revolver in one hand and his parachute in the other. He actually was an experienced uh, skydiver. And he didn't even bother to buy a ticket. Um, he just ran aboard uh, a flight that was deplaning at the time. After hijacking the plane, Hetty had the pilots fly south over Lake Washu. He had parked his car at the south end of the lake, and he jumped out where he hoped he would land near his car. Um, unfortunately, he was a few miles away. So uh, during the time he was walking to his car, of course, Every law enforcement in the area was out looking for him. And a couple of sheriff, sheriff's deputies came across a car parked on a dirt road with a Parachute Association bumper sticker. And they sort of looked at each other and thought, what are the odds? So they just waited and eventually Rob Hetty walked up uh, and uh, retrieved his key from under a rock and they arrested him. Wow. Now, Martin McNally was the last parachute hijacker to jump, as you write in your book. And you described that his trial in December of 1972, it marked the end of this era. There were 33 hijackings of U.S. commercial flights in 1972, but only one unsuccessful attempt occurred in 1973. Why did the trend stop? Well, it's an easy answer, and that's airport security. So uh, again, as hijackings turned increasingly violent in 1972, airlines finally got serious about installing metal detectors for passengers to pass through and uh, uh, x-ray machines for carry-on luggage. They also, for the first time, many airlines started requiring that passengers present ID. Um, that wasn't the case before this hijacking era. And uh, all of this heightened security just uh, made it increasingly difficult to carry a weapon on a plane. 
John, toward the end of the book, you raise the fact that we are in a different era of aviation. After 9-11, when all of airport security and our fears of the worst case scenarios, we no longer were worried about having to be flown to Havana or someone like Martin McNally. You write that, in this sense, we share a lot in common with travelers from the early 1970s. We live in a world that seems less certain and that we have traded a measure of comfort and a measure of individual freedom for safety. Looking back at this era, does it feel like we are living in something that is similar? What, what is similar and what is different about this? Well, it's different in that no one could hijack planes in the way it was done between 1968 and 1972. Um, But I think it's the same in that there's still a sense of uncertainty about airline travel. It's the one form of transportation where we have this massive security apparatus. uh, And yet, uh, to some extent, people still worry about what will happen. And this may become more of a feature of travel as we uh, potentially decentralize our air travel system. John, what do you hope readers come away from this book feeling or learning? Well, you know, stories that fascinate us, whatever stories they are, do so for a reason. And I think in that sense, even though the circumstances are completely different today regarding things like airline travel and security, We can still see a lot of ourselves in the people that boarded airplanes between 1968 and 1972. Um, And I think in the end, it's that connection uh, to their experiences that still continues to fascinate people and draw them into these stories. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.